a common mistake a lot of young coaches make is too much flapping about with drills and too many drills. Pick your three drills and have variations of them and stick to that. Bang them out, get stuck into the important stuff. And the important stuff is running fast. So what works is sprinting, right? Essentially, as much sprinting as you can whilst you're fresh, as often as possible, and just try not to burn the other end of the candle off too much at the same time. Like That's the stuff that's going to, in a team and field sport setting, that's the sort of thing that's going to prepare your athletes to run fast, keep them robust and resilient, and give them the best chance to make an impact in the game. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. Today, I am delighted to welcome Nathan Kiley from the Brisbane Broncos. So Nathan is rehab and speed coach, and it is a particular article that he wrote for Sportsmith recently that we discussed today, or for the majority of today, and then we have a little chat around a few other things. But the, the first half of the episode in particular is around the knees over toes phenomenon that has kind of spread across social media and athletes are taking it taking the principles and basically asking questions of their coach, strength and conditioning coach and sports scientists of how this can be applied to them or how this does apply to them. So we've got to be critical with this kind of information and Nathan gives his critique of the methodology. But as well as that, we have a little chat around cross-training. Nathan is moving into an off-season period in the NRL in, in Australia. So that's at the front of his mind. So we get some cross-training tips for coaches. Then we have a little chat around his passion, which is the speed side of things. What's worked, what hasn't when it comes to rugby league athletes. So really fascinating episode coming up with Nathan. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Play. Play is the leader in high-performance athletic flooring and strength equipment globally. So with offices in the US, Australia and the UK, Play provides an end-to-end experience by collaborating with organisations through their own proprietary formula to create world-class environments for coaches and athletes. Play's Achieve 18mm Rubber and Attack Turf have been at the cornerstone of elite training facilities for now over a decade with the addition of the new Icon X rack range. Play are once again set to elevate the industry. On the 23rd of April 2022, Play will be hosting their first UK lab of the year in collaboration with Loughborough University. Play will be joined by some exceptional speakers from elite sport, industry and academia with a huge breadth of knowledge and experience. Listeners and supporters of Pace Performance Podcast are able to obtain an exclusive 20% discount using the code SPORTSMITH20 when registering at playacademy.com forward slash play hyphen labs hyphen Loughborough. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. 
If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defense, and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, imeasureu.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Nathan. Nathan Kiley, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, mate. Um, I've been a long-time listener and... um really enjoy all the content that you put out and all the stuff you're doing with Sportsmiths at the moment. So it's yeah, real, real honour to, to come on the show, mate. Looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you very much. And thank you for being a, an expert contributor with your knees over toes. Critique. Don't know about expert. I'll just I'll continue. say that. I'll say that. You don't have to say it because that'll probably make you quiver, but I'll, I'll definitely say <laughs> that. Um, no, but I appreciate you being a, a contributor to Sportsmith and obviously for the kind words. No, my pleasure, mate. Would you mind just doing us a little bit of a quick bio? And I'm going to change, frame it slightly differently, this bio, and just ask you, what is it about you, your education, your character, your qualities that has allowed you um, allowed you to get into the position you are today and had, have the career that you've had so far? Um, oh, interesting question. I suppose, um, well, what I do at the moment, I'm like a athletic performance coach here at the Brisbane Broncos and I'm primarily responsible for rehab and speed um, which is an interesting mix but I think they're actually really complementary as well which is which is pretty cool Um, I suppose my background and how I got here was I guess like a lot of SNCs I'm a weekend warrior who loves running around and enjoy uh, training and movement and Whenever I was doing something physical, I always wanted to be the best I could be at it, which sort of led to a passion for training. Um, stock standard S and C answer. Um, and I also, um, I suppose, one of the things that uh, has really helped me in my career is I've always probably been a bit of a go getter and have been willing to put myself out there, um, which has opened a lot more doors than it's closed for me. It's probably closed one or two along the way, but I think. Um, yeah, being willing to uh, yeah open yourself up to failure a little bit as well. I think that's that's pretty important, especially when you're a young young coach. Um, I've been really lucky too in terms of the career progression I've had. So I had a, a brief internship with the Australian Rugby Sevens, which was the first thing I did while I was still at uni. So sort of deer in the headlights there, like looking at a really high performance program. 
um, realizing I have absolutely no idea about what they're doing. Um, it's funny, I look back on some of the stuff they're doing, they were doing back then, and I, I look at that today and go, oh, that was actually really cool what they were doing back then. Um, I had an internship at the Newtown Jets in the New South Wales Cup with a guy named Graham Morris. Um, and he, he was awesome at just sort of showing me like a holistic and pragmatic approach to S&C. And Graham's an awesome practitioner. The stuff he was able to do on a shoestring budget, um, well, not even shoestring, there was no budget, but the program he was able to deliver was really cool. Um, and it just gave me a lot of like really good practical groundings on stuff that you can do and deliver day to day. Um, like I said, putting myself out there and, and asking just coaches, can I come and watch what you do and things like that led to an opportunity with a guy named Roger Fabri, who's like a speed and agility coach in Sydney. And he works uh, in a in the private sector with a lot of uh, professional athletes during their off seasons and things like that. And um, yeah, he brought me on as a coach and you're in, in the park with some cones and a stopwatch and you got to make kids faster. Um, and that was uh, an interesting learning environment as well in terms of taking away a lot of the fluff and, and learning from his experience around like the bang for your buck elements of a program and what actually moves the needle and works because in that environment like you get measured on something really simple like did the number go down on the stopwatch like you you can't afford to um, have a program that doesn't work I suppose uh, and that has stayed with me to this day in terms of what I deliver in, in my role as a speed coach Um other experiences I had, I worked in high school setting uh, for, for a couple of years, delivering um, S&C content for a rugby program with a guy named Nathan Parnham, and that was an awesome environment for learning about long-term athletic development, um, but behaviours and athlete engagement, things like that with uh, student athletes. Um, that, that was a really cool experience. Um, then at the same time as that, I was working at the Sydney Roosters with their under-20s program, and there I was working with a, a guy named Sam Kennedy who's a, um Australian representative uh, in Olympic weightlifting. So to get exposed to like proper strength and power development from a guy who's um, got all that experience, um, has spent time under the bar, like he really showed me how to Olympic lift and... Um, like how strong you can really get. And I think that's a really cool grounding to have. I think a lot of S&Cs dip their toes into lots of different things, but sometimes you just got to go all in on, a, on an element of training. So to have done that from a speed perspective and then from an Olympic weightlifting perspective, I think that gave me a really good foundation on um, like getting big outputs from athletes, maximising training. Um, those were kind of like my first forays into, into coaching. Uh, and at the same time as my work at the Roosters, uh, I started doing a biomechanics uh, honours research project at UTS um, where I focused on, on fast bowling, which then led into a job at Cricket New South Wales. So um, getting that research exposure um, was, was really foundational in terms of understanding how to read research and interpret it. Um, and learning about that process uh, and then sort of my first full-time job was at Cricket New South Wales where I spent three and a half years working across the academy, uh, the women's program and the male program. I, that, I think at Cricket New South Wales we serviced 170 athletes a year across all sorts of different um, age groups, male, female, professional, sub-elite and I don't think there was a program I wasn't involved with at some point or another um, and and the Australian cricket landscape is an interesting place to work in as well because it's a big systems approach, 
um, procedures, the record keeping, the way that things are benchmarked and the frameworks that we use as well. So I look back on all of those experiences and the different things that I took from different working environments and um, I think it's allowed me to be a really good generalist, I suppose, in terms of I've got a bit of an understanding of this, that and everything else in between Uh, and it's allowed me to sort of become a really good gap filler at times as well. So even in my current role, like my specialty is rehab and speed, but if we want to do performance testing in the gym and um, we're using gym aware, like Nathan's pretty good with tech. Nathan, can you run that for us? Or um, we're doing a, a top-up session for conditioning. Like I've done plenty of conditioning sessions. I can get out there on the stopwatch and run run a group through a conditioning session. And just having that broad skill set, I think that's such a good thing to develop as a young coach. Um, but I think there's there's still depth in that breadth as well. Like I think at different times I've, I've gone all in on different elements or different projects, like speed, uh, Olympic weightlifting, um, the research. Um, and I think when you, when you spend a good 12 months like really investing in something, uh, it gives you a stronger sort of understanding rather than just kind of touching on it all the time without going all in. I think that's yeah. I think that from from even from personal experience, I think often as a young coach, there's so many so overwhelmed with with what's out there, it can be easy to just jump from one thing to the next and go, oh, oh, I'm so down on that area. I need to jump into that, and you see something else. Oh, I need to do that as well, and you just jump from one thing to the next and get this kind of relatively hollow experience and and interest and knowledge on lots of different things but not the depth in one or two things. That sounds yeah, it might like be, it might be an example well. of something where like block periodize your development a little 100%, bit. hundred like, percent, yeah, yeah. might not be how I approach my training with my athletes. Yeah. But if, if you actually want to get good at something, you've kind of got to have enough density and concentration behind the energy that you're investing in it. Um, and yeah, I, my personal experience, that's just what's worked for me. And like I, I think it's definitely set me in good stead. Nice, mate. Right, we're going to dive into this article that you wrote for Sportsmith a couple of months ago, and it was around the knees over toes movement fad. I don't know what phenomenon. it is. Phenomenon, exactly. Phenomenon. Has this guy still got his? Has Patrick still got his Instagram account? He's a bit quiet. Yeah. At the moment. Yeah. Interesting. I anyway. Don't know what to make of that. <laughs> would you? Maybe it's the article get waves oh, into I'm his sure into his. <laughs> Would you mind just giving us an overview of what the phenomenon is? Yeah, I suppose, um, well, ultimately, like, knees over toes, it's just like an approach to training your lower body, right? So on its own, I don't have an issue with it. In fact, like, I'm a big proponent of, like, if I've got my athletes in the gym and I'm teaching them to squat like a young athlete, I'm teaching them an Olympic-style squat. Like, I want vertical trunk. I do want you ass to grass. I want your knees going in front of your toes. I want deep knee flexion. I think we should teach athletes to have the capacity to do that sort of stuff. At different times in your programming or whatever, you might not be doing it, but you should have the ability to do that sort of stuff. So fundamentally, I don't have an issue with it. Um, but what I kind of saw was I'd have athletes come to me and or I would see them doing some knees over toes stuff that we hadn't programmed for them. And I'd go and ask them, oh, what's, what's going on here? Why are you doing that? And they go, oh, I've got a sore knee. Um, I've been doing the stuff the physio has given me, but I also saw this stuff on the internet and I thought I'd try it out. And I go, okay, cool. Well, 
let me know how you go with it. And inevitably, two, three weeks later, they go, my knee is killing me. It's so sore. They've gotten worse. Um, yeah, maybe it's time to take a step back from the knees over toes stuff. Um, so I'd had more than one example of that. And I've, um, I, I just sort of saw a lot of momentum behind it. And um, I kind of felt like it was a bit fatty. Um, and I just thought, well, there's benefits to it, but we could also sort of have a bit of a balanced approach to this and kind of work through it a little bit more uh, methodically and understand the pros and cons. Um, there's definitely a time and place for it. And um, I also wanted to sort of provide a caveat and say this, is, this stuff's not an attack on Ben Patrick. I actually have a lot of admiration for what he's done. Um when I when I create social media content, I'll tell you what his page is inspiration, mate. The stuff that he posted is so cool. It's like I wrote in the article. It's like it's eye candy. It's really it's really well put together stuff. Um, but I just kind of felt like sometimes the the nuance to the messaging wasn't there. So I just wanted to I suppose try and provide a little bit of that nuance. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one one thing that you mentioned in the article was the uh, the emphasis on the knees over toes split squat, and that's something. If you go, I tried to find his page. I'm sure there's no page there, but I might be wrong. Anyway, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of push on the split squat. That been a foundational uh, kind of movement within this philosophy. And then the athletic development, SNC, sports science, whatever it is, area of our industry have kind of taken that on board and tried to, or it looks like they tried to integrate that within performance settings. And that's something that, again, that you focus on in the article. From your point of view, in terms of a critique of that approach, how do you feel about that and the split squat and its transfer to the things that we want to happen on the field and the court? Yeah, I suppose there's probably two prongs to it. So there's the the rehab setting, um, like the injury prevention or the like feeling good. Like he talks a lot about like this is going to make your knees feel good, right? So often you're talking about people who are in pain. Um, so there's that perspective and then there's the performance perspective. So from a rehab perspective, they there's kind of like two pervasive claims that um, the knees over toes people Phenomenon. make, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> the phenoms. Um, the first claim that they make is around, well, they're both related to the VMO. So the first claim they make is that the VMO is really important for uh, reducing knee pain if you've got patellofemoral pain. Um, and what they've tried to do is actually use evidence to support their claims. And I actually bothered to go and read the papers that they cite, and it doesn't say what they say it says. <laughs> So the first one they quote is this Toomey paper from 2013 and they had all these people have knee pain and they looked at VMO strength. Um, basically, they found people with strong VMOs in their cohort had a 75% chance of having knee pain and people with weak VMOs had an 85% chance of having knee pain. So there is a trend to say that stronger VMO good. But it's not statistically significant and it's not definitive evidence. Like it's maybe there's a trend there, maybe there isn't. So to say it's the key muscle and everything's about VMO training, I think that's probably an overstatement. It's it's multifactorial. There's more to it than that. 
And then the second claim that they make is um, around the knees over toes exercise, being the split squat, or you could apply it to a normal squat or whatever, is basically that you can preferentially target the VMOs. And they cite this Marchetti paper from 2016. Um, and I don't know what they were thinking when they cited this study because that's not what it says at all. So the study they cited shows that the, VM, the VMO, like if you look at the surface EMG, it's highest at 90 degrees of knee flexion. So not a deep squat. Um, and then it actually drops by 30% when you get to 140 degrees of knee flexion. So a deep squat, you get less VMO activation. Um, that's what this paper says. It, th- this is the paper they cite, right? So if you went and looked at the whole evidence, maybe it says something else, but I just thought it was interesting that they're trying to use evidence to support their claim and it didn't really back up what they were trying to say. Um, the second prong that you mentioned is the athletic performance side of things. So is the knees over toes split squat or their um, philosophy um, going to make you better at sporting actions and sports performance and things like that? Um, now, this particular claim doesn't come from Ben Patrick or his group, but I had seen um, a, a strength coach, and I think we actually discussed this offline we before months ago. I, for the life of me, I couldn't find it. There was this post from someone on Twitter about um, knees over toes, split squat, and the transfer to acceleration. And basically, they were kind of they had their two pictures, and it was shin angle in knees over toes, split squat, and shin angle in acceleration. Um, and I searched high and wide and I can't find it. So you're just going to have to believe me that it exists and I didn't make this up. Um, and basically when I saw that, I kind of went, oh, yeah, I can see what you're saying, but that's actually not how it works. And the reason that's not how it works is because there's a confusion around uh, local and global coordinate systems that's going on there. Um, and I've got to give a lot of credit to Dan Cleather, who I think you've had on the show before. Uh, I read his book Force, and it's a great little book um, in in all the all the things that it goes through, the details it goes through. But one of the things he talks about is the confusion around um, force vector theory that he he um, rubbishes, I suppose, which um, sort of comes from from Brett Contreras's work. Um, essentially, what we've got is we can look at the individual athlete and the reference frame for them. So you've got superior, inferior, like up and down relative to your body um, and everything else around it. And then you've got the global um, coordinate system, which is vertical in relation to the world. And your body and the world don't necessarily always align with each other. So um, in acceleration... Yeah, an athlete is going to be generating force in an inferior orientation through their body, um, which is down and back in the world-fixed system. So this is where we get confusion around horizontal forces. So you look at horizontal ground reaction forces in acceleration and people go, oh, we need like horizontally orientated strength training, like a hip thrust or something like that. But they're forgetting that you've got to look at the orientation of the body. Like you're at a 45-degree shin and trunk angle so all of that force is being produced inferiorly to the body you're still just pushing down if you stood the athlete up they're just pushing straight down into the ground Um, then if you look at that and compare it to the knees over toes split squat the what you're doing there is you're sort of distributing load over the toes and then pushing sort of up and back through the forefoot to return to your start position um, which is a different movement It, it doesn't correspond um 
neither from like a local coordinate or global coordinate system perspective. They actually don't look the same. And in the article, I actually would argue that um, just like a low box step up has far more dynamic correspondence to acceleration than an ease over toe split squat. If you look at the joint angles, you look at the uh, the vector that the force is being applied through, and the force is a vector quality, but you're pushing down in, in the same way. So like I, like I said, I don't have an issue with knees over toes training. I like it. I think there's a time and place for it. But I just think you've got to understand its limitations, the pros and cons, um, and just appreciate too that it's GPP. It's not. I don't think it's specific to any action that we see in sport, like not in a team or a field sport. You're never in those positions. It's still got benefits. You can improve tissue quality and promote blood flow to the area, and there's all sorts of great benefits, but... I just wouldn't fool yourself into thinking that it's like a panacea to injury prevention or to any aspect of performance. Do you think it's, this is a classic case of of taking something, running with it, pushing it to its limit, and then some, like you say, eye candy, clever marketing, nice Instagram posts around it? Obviously some... some slightly spurious claims with links to research based on what you've just said, them, them two papers that they hang their hat on which probably aren't saying what they think they're saying or they've been told they're saying. And that just kind of building and snowballing and it becoming an extreme and then and then all of us, you know, at some point it'll probably swing back and people will go, I'm not quite sure about that and we just end up somewhere. Yeah, I think it's, it's a, a good example of... Um... I think what happens in the sort of social media sphere in this industry, which is that every now and then someone will just come up and say the complete opposite of what everyone else has been saying. And it gains a lot of traction for whatever reason, just because um, there's like this, there's there's a love for contrarianism. Um, And yeah, I think it's, it's actually got benefits because it gets people to think outside the box and, uh, I think you should be open to all this stuff, but you should also have the ability to criti- critically analyse claims. Um, and, yeah, I, I think we, yeah, you see it come in swings and roundabouts. There's, I don't want to go into all this weird go-to stuff that's on the internet or whatever, but, like, just some weird stuff comes up where someone comes out of the blue and just says the complete opposite of what we think we know about training and movement and whatever, and... Um, sometimes there's something to it, but sometimes it's a bit spurious as well. And I think that's that's a credit to you and the other people in the industry who have been faced with <clears throat> athletes who were spending a lot, as we all are, spending a lot of time on Instagram and getting influenced by these kind of people and then try it and then, you know, that's that, that adds another layer of complexity to what you do because you're not only advising athletes in a, in a program you're trying to dispel or look into other claims that they've been influenced by like 15 years ago it may have been a you know muslim health magazine or you know men's health or whatever it is and then you're trying to dispel that and encourage the right thing and now it's just it's in our faces all the time and you guys are dealing with that because players are getting influenced by it and think that that looks cool and it's maybe better or something different to what you're putting down on the, on the on the program for that day so that yeah it makes it hard for you guys it's an interesting balance too because yeah. i actually really enjoy the fact when uh, an athlete takes an interest in 
exploring movement and what their body can do. Like I actually think that's really cool. And I think like I do that with my own body. I try stuff on myself and um, just because it doesn't work out doesn't mean it was the end of the world and it wasn't a disaster, but you've kind of got to balance the risk a little bit too. So um, yeah, it's an awkward sort of conversation to have with an athlete who's excited about trying something and you kind of got to pump the brakes on it a little bit and um, yeah, kind of have that conversation with them. I know you mentioned that example of the the athlete with the knee pain and trying this out because I see it on Instagram. Is there anywhere or any aspects of this philosophy that you would use when it comes to athletes with knee pain? Any examples of it actually having or aspects having a positive effect? Yeah, look, I think um, first of all, you've got to make sure that like you get a good diagnosis around what your injury is. Like, it's not a one size fits all injury approach. You make sure you actually know. What we're trying to, what's the problem that we're trying to fix here? Um, ask questions around what might the other factors be that have influenced this injury. It might not be a strength issue. It could be lifestyle or a training habit. Like you might have a guy who just keeps turning off his right leg and he's got sore right knee. Well, maybe stop doing that. Like sometimes it's it's easier than you think. Um, training loads usually the most significant factor. Like if you've got a big spike or change in what you're doing, then yeah. It's, it's probably not a surprise if, if you've got sore um, pain or injury start developing, mobility, motor control, all these other factors can contribute. So go through the process of ticking that stuff off um, and then if it's appropriate for the athlete, like if, they've, they, if they can get into these positions pain-free, okay, well, let's commence a progressive overload scheme to get you stronger in these positions and, and build the capacity to get get better at this sort of stuff um, but it's also worth considering like what's their injury history do they have knee degeneration and other things going on you, you've just got to look at it holistically and look at all the factors um, but look I, I don't have a fundamental opposition to deep knee flexion um, in rehab in any element of training, I, I just think you need to be careful um, in in how you introduce something like that, especially if it's particularly novel for an athlete. If they've if they've never done that, something like that before, you need to respect the fact that it's going to take time for their body to adapt to it and get used to it. So, to finish this little bit of a set, little bit of section for, um, to set us up for the next half hour. In summary, be critical of what you see online doesn't fit everyone this is probably a swing one way and it'll probably come back towards the middle as it always seems to do yeah so that's yeah. that's pretty fair summary so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with nathan hope you're enjoying part one so over in part two we have a little chat around cross training so how we can use different equipment to get different adaptations how we can manipulate sessions and get the desired outcome that we want with the athletes who are needing this type of training, whether it be through a rehab process or managing workload. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. 
Kidman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And now back to the episode with Nathan. Next section, we're going to have a little look at cross-training. And I'm sure your head is in this space because it's off-season in, in rugby league or coming towards off-season rugby league. But I think it'll be really interesting for those that are in season, try to manage workloads, like you say, try to manage uh, training schedules, fixture schedules, especially in something like football with a with a World Cup coming up, congested fixture schedule as always. So when it comes to cross-training, there was obviously a big emphasis on it with um, from the likes of Dan Baker a couple of years ago, who wrote quite a bit on this on this topic and probably influenced a lot of people. But where's what's your philosophy? when it comes to cross-training, where it fits, where it doesn't, equipment choices, all that kind of stuff? Um, yeah, so like for me, I think we always try and prioritise field-based training. Um, if we can get our conditioning effect through, like ultimately, if you, if you can do it through um, training above peak game intensity in um, the same conditions as a game, so for us in rugby league, 13 on 13, um, that's ideal, then we work back from that to fill the gaps, right? So that's when our traditional conditioning methods come into it. So that might be MAS running, tempo running, whatever you fancy. I don't really care. Um, Another debate let's, there. Let's, let's, <laughs> uh, I'm not going there. Do both. <laughs> um, then if you can't use those tools, my next regression would be some sort of mechanical drilling supplementary exercise so we might be doing a runs or dribble progressions or scissor runs things like that like let's try and do the closest thing we can if possible but sometimes you can't run um so the the two main cohorts where i'll use a cross training method are going to be guys in rehab um or athletes who need to sort of uh, make some body recompositioning changes and the main reason we'll use cross-training is in, in those um, cohorts is basically we can do a lot of work and we can make aerobic changes to our athlete without necessarily applying a mechanical stress um, that you would get from running. So this is specific to team and field sport athletes, of course. Um, 
now obviously there's there's wins to be had there, but it's it's obviously not as specific. So uh, we just do the best we can. Um, when it comes to your equipment choices, uh, use what you've got available, but. Uh, in an ideal situation, you want to try and think about what's got the lowest cost, like what can I um, get my athletes up from again, what's the least, least likely tool to make them sore or cause an injury, uh, obviously. Um, and then in my opinion, I think it's important that you've got something that's calibrated, that you can um, be repeated with, be measurable with, uh, and, and something that you can, um, I suppose, recreate the conditions with something with a low barrier to entry as well um, now my experience I, I started using all sorts of different things and over time I've narrowed down to using the watt bike I think that's a really good tool I used to use the rower a lot as well but um, I just found because cross training is not a large fundamental component of our program it's something that you kind of have to dip in and out of at different times Sometimes there is a barrier of entry to rowing. Um, if it was something we did consistently, I'm sure we could teach everyone good technique and they'd all be fine. But if you just jump on the row once in a blue moon, I reckon your chance of 20% of your athletes are going to complain of having a sore back after it. So just from my experience, I chose a lot bike. No one really seems to have issues with the bike. Um, tends, tends to go pretty well. Um, from a philosophical perspective, for me... Um, I suppose a common mistake I tend to see with cross-training, in my opinion, this could be wrong, I think there's an overemphasis on high-intensity or intensive uh, like methods with cross-training. The reason I think there's an overemphasis is that we look at the research and we go, oh, yeah, it's a really effective, efficient use of our time. Uh, you get like the epoch effect, you get these... Um, like peripheral adaptations, so um, like muscular capillarization, increased uh, oxidative capacity, all that stuff's great. Like you've got a, um, a greater uh, amount of work being done by the muscles when you do a high-intensity um, method. But when you're talking about cross-training, you, you're talking about a, a mode of training where you've actually lost the specificity. So those peripheral adaptations actually don't transfer particularly well, but you do get a cost. So you're going to have some neurological fatigue and you're going to get muscle damage when you do high-intensity methods. So it actually makes it a bit harder to back up from cross-training if you're using a high-intensity method. So the example I'll, I'll use is, say we did like a Tabata protocol. I'm probably not going to be super keen to do like 16 minutes of Tabata and then the next day, do speed work with an athlete. I'd probably be hesitant. Like we could train, we could run, but if I wanted to do high-intensity training on the field, I'd be a little bit iffy about that because they, they could be sore. Whereas if I use an extensive measure where I still get all of those central training adaptations, so um, everything to do with sort of how your heart and lungs function, the uh, amount of blood that you can deliver to the muscles, you still retain all of those benefits with an extensive method, uh, but the cost is less. So the next day, I'm more comfortable doing high-intensity training on the field. Um, I suppose those are probably the key reasons that I err on the, the side of the extensive methods or, or protocols or whatever you want to call them. Um, 
I just think the you end up needing a bit more time to recover from the intensive stuff, um, which in a chaotic environment like team and field sports, like I'll get athletes sent to me at the last second just because of the nature of the environment we work in and they've got to do some cross training. So if by default I give them extensive training, then I'm more confident that it's not going to negatively affect the subsequent training days and the rest of their training week uh, as opposed to, yeah, if we smoke them. So do you, how do you use the Watt bike in terms of managing and monitoring what they do? Yeah, so I kind of, um, over over time, I built out a system where now I've basically just got like six workout cards that I'll just choose from because it's, it's made my life easier. And it, it all came um, on the basis of just trying to, yeah, make, make things more efficient. I wasn't out to try and systemize or develop a big protocol or anything. I just wanted something that was easy. So what I did was... Um, I wanted to have something that drove intensity uh, and accountability in, in the sessions because I felt that sometimes with cross-training, it's really easy to go, oh, go do whatever protocol you, you design and oh, I don't know what the targets should be for this athlete and they're like it's a bit arbitrary, it's a bit made up and if it makes it hard for it to be repeatable as well. Whereas I thought if I made something that was a bit more systemized um, and we had targets that were well established and well understood and could be revisited time and time again, that um, the athletes are going to be able to engage a bit better with it. Um, so I kind of took the approach that you would say with MAS running, for instance, if you're doing short high intensity intervals like 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off, in a team setting, you'll typically bucket your athletes into different groups, right? You might have one bunch of athletes who are doing 75 metres, one, one group's doing 80, one group's doing 85. But usually you've tested their maximal aerobic speed to group them, and I didn't really want to have to test people's MAS on, on the Watt bike, so I kind of just made up these arbitrary cutoffs based on previous testing data. So what I did was I went, okay, well, um, I know that Hang on, I've got them written down just for, for reference. Um, I know that like uh, if, you, if you can maintain 13.3 metres per second in a five-minute time trial on the watt bike, like you're a gun. Like in a team, a team or field sport, intermittent team or field sport athlete, maybe for play AFL or soccer, it might be a little bit higher, but the, the, guys, the guys, this is for male athletes. I've got female ones as well. Um, but for the male athletes I work with, I thought that was pretty good. Then I've got... Um, I broke it up into five groups, so 13.3, 12.8, 12.2, 11.5, and, and then 11. Um, and I, I categorised them as a platinum standard, a gold, silver, bronze standard, and then a participation standard, which no one ever wants to be. So <laughs> no. just by building that into it, um, you get competition like a competitive athlete immediately doesn't want to be in the shit group. So... Um, you'd be surprised how hard guys will push themselves without much more motivation than not wanting to be crap. Um, so from that, then I uh, uh, sort of built out all of the protocols um, that I like using. So uh, I've got inten uh, intensive long intervals, extensive long intervals. A lot of this stuff I was heavily influenced by um, Mladen Jovanovic, with um but again 
looking at more of the extensive type protocols. And then I basically just built out um, targets for each of them, for each group. And then on my workout card, I've got, all right, if you want to be in gold, you've got to maintain this time, uh, sorry, you've got to maintain this pace for the duration of each rep. Um, and if you want to work up a group, then here's the next target. Or if you fall off, you'll end up down in this group. And um, I didn't necessarily prescribe um, athletes to groups. I just let them go and do it. Like, it's cross-trained. It doesn't really matter. Like, I think people overthink a lot of this stuff, but you've got competition built into it. The athletes are engaged and accountable immediately. Um I can leave an athlete to their own devices for 30 minutes on the watt bike and I come over and I go, oh, how'd you go? And they go, oh, I got two golds and a silver uh, and then I finish with a bronze. And I go, oh, well, you fell away there. Next time, let's try and get two golds, two silvers. And immediately they're engaged. They go, oh, yeah, there's um, it's like a bit of a, a growth mindset to it immediately. It's like, oh, yeah, this is something that I can improve at over time. Um, and then even better, you got them in a group setting, just on the whiteboard, everyone's initials down, reps one, two, three, four, etc. along, and you just write down what benchmark they hit each time. Um, and they, they all know how hard it is to hit, hit platinum, so they're all striving for it, but, yeah, it's, it's hard work. And, um, yeah, I just found it really useful and easy way to deliver training to the guys. Um, and, and the last thing that I'll say about... The, the benefits of it was the great thing is now I've got athletes who just come in and pick one on their on their own on their day off or during the off season now we've got guys coming in and oh yeah I remember Nath took me through this session when I was in rehab three months ago I'll have a crack at that again and I might do that twice a week for the next month or so um, so it's it's been um, oh, not quite a revelation but it certainly um, worked really well and even talking with some of our other coaches, they've been surprised by how engaged the athletes are with it because some of the protocols are pretty boring. Like the stock standard one I'll, I'll give guys is uh, like an extensive interval of eight minutes on with three-minute recoveries and we'll do three or four reps based on um, basically the time allocation that we've got or if they need to back up the next day or whatever. But eight minutes on on a lot bike, it's not very exciting. Um, you're pretty much just pedaling away. But when in the back of your mind, you're looking at that pace and it tips over 1 minute 30 per K and you go, oh, I really want to get under 130 so that I can, I can hit gold, then like they, they start pushing themselves and um, yeah, they really buy in. Is there any reason why you haven't tapped into the kind of power wattage side of things when it comes to the watt bike? Yeah, I've been asked that before. Um, basically, I, I built it out on maximal aerobic speed, so... Um, yeah, no good reason why I haven't. Um, it's just that, yeah, I, I had collected some maximal aerobic speed testing data and I'd used that to prescribe stuff in the past. There's no reason you couldn't, um, someone else couldn't go and, yeah, use your, your, your wattage, your, your, um, yeah, if you did peak power testing or maximal aerobic speed testing and assessed it on, on a basis of well, maximal aerobic wattage or power, sorry. Um, you couldn't build out a similar sort of thing and use use wattage to, to benchmark your um, intervals. I, that would work as well. Uh, it's just the way I did it. Do you, do, you, do you use this for guys that you're managing 
uh, on-field time for as well, as well as the rehab. Yeah. Rehab guys. So we, we, if if we've got an athlete who's um, modified training load, um, and we need to keep building their engine, it's particularly in preseason, you might have someone who's got shin splints or whatever. Like, all right, obviously we can't just keep running you because that's going to put you in a hole. But we can use cross-training methods to, to keep building your aerobic base. It's not as good, but um, it's better than nothing. Um, and then, as I said, I've got probably six different protocols that I'll use, and then we just sort of pick the protocol that um, is going to best suit the athlete based on where it fits in their training week, um, who they are as an individual, like what, what their, their training goals are, all that sort of stuff. Um, but, but the beauty of it is that they're all just sitting there ready to go, which, which makes it easy. Perfect. Right. Next five, well, 10 minutes-ish, we're going to go and focus on the second part of your job title, which is the speed side, which looking at your, well, looking at how you speak when you talk about this side, this is clearly a passion of yours and it's the the, the, the speed training, like I said. Yeah, I is love that, it, Is mate. that right? Um, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah. I, I don't know, there's something intuitive. Like when I started out in this industry, speed, it always seemed obvious to me that like that's, the the thing that a physical performance coach can influence that's got the greatest ability to affect someone's impact in a game. So, um, yeah, like my, my first foray into speed coaching with Roger Fabri was basically I just wanted to learn some stuff about speed and I just hit him up out of the blue and he said, yeah, sure, come down and, and watch some training. Um, and, yeah, just been in love with it ever since. I'm really passionate about it. As a as a f- well former failed athlete as we as we all are, speed is the always the one thing that if I could have one quality, it'd be that it wouldn't be jump higher. It would like I played centre back in in football. Like jump higher, like lose that. I want the speed because if I mess up, I can get back. Like it, it <laughs> just it just yeah, it's the it's the quality that everyone wants. So what I'm going to come to you with is a couple of different questions and maybe not to definitely not to get a kind of clickbaity answer out of you but what do you think what what has worked for you when it comes to speed training um i think the key it's it's not it isn't clickbaity stuff it's it's bang for your buck fundamental drills um and a big part of my philosophy is trying to spend as little time on them as possible actually like use use drills to just warm you up like and you know what you could probably not use drills to warm up you could probably who's to say that you couldn't just do some run-throughs and build up and then you warm and then you sprint like that's probably the best way to warm up for speed but obviously there's um an expectation from athletes and an expectation from your peers that you do some drilling and i do like drills there's they're good uh they provide an opportunity for you to sort of get some context around positions and things like that and they're good for coordination um, but don't spend a lot of time on them. I think that a common mistake a lot of young coaches make is too much flapping about with drills uh, and too many drills. Pick your, pick your three drills and have variations of them um, and stick to that. Just bang them out, get stuck into the, to the important stuff and the important stuff is running fast. So what works is sprinting, right? Like do it as essentially as much sprinting as you can whilst you're fresh um, as often as possible 
and just try not to burn the other end of the candle off too much at the same time. Like that's the stuff that's going to, in a team and field sports setting, that's the sort of thing that's going to prepare your athletes to run fast, keep them robust and resilient and give them the best chance to make an impact in the game. Is there anything over the time in, in cricket and in rugby league where you focused on something that you thought maybe you've read or you've had you know influenced by other practitioners in the in the industry you thought I'm going to implement this and I think I'm I think it's going to be work really well because of x y and z that hasn't is there anything that comes to mind when I say that yeah there have been examples um and I don't think it's so much a case of they didn't work it was probably more how I applied them and I think that's a big element of um, like developing your experience. So ev- everything works to an extent. Um, it's just about, you know, applying the right dose to the right athlete at the right time. So the, when I've made, pardon me, when I've made mistakes, it's been too much, too often, too fast. So whether that's plyometrics or resisted sprints or a type of drill or just sprinting itself, like it's, it's all about sort of knowing your cohort, learning your cohort, understanding what their uh, unique individual capacities and thresholds are. So athlete A, B, C and D, that they are all going to have different uh, abilities to tolerate training load. Um, and you've just got to fine tune what you're giving to them so that they can recover from it, uh, so that it doesn't negatively affect everything else that they're doing. Um, so that you, I mean, overtraining is probably not so much an issue in team and field sports, but you, you don't want to be taken away. Like you can definitely fatigue an athlete with a speed session going straight into skills and conditioning and, and take away from their motor learning or skill acquisition that happens subsequently. So, um, yeah, I think I've, I've made mistakes with that sort of stuff, but I think the big thing for me is like I'm pretty big on um, – trying this stuff myself like I I think a mistake that a lot of physical performance or strength and conditioning coaches make is not doing the field stuff like we get so bound to the weight room um, but I reckon twice a week get out there and do something on the field like for probably the last four or five years my training split has been speed lowers uppers speed lower uppers and I reckon that's how strength and conditioning coaches should train because you'll learn so much more about the field stuff when you're doing it yourself. So if I see something online or I go to a workshop or a conference and um, I'm exposed to a new method or whatever, I'm like, okay, cool, I'm going to give that a go and, and see what I think. Like the coach is the best guinea pig and once you know and understand what it feels to do it, feels like to do it not just once but to do it week in, week out and back up and do other things around it, I think that's when you get the best perspective around whether or not this is going to work in your environment um, and it's not until I've I'm thoroughly convinced that something works on me that I'm probably going to give it to my athletes which might make my program a little bit boring at times like it's definitely something I need to get better at is adding more variety and keeping it interesting but I just I don't like having fluff in the program like I think if we're going to do something it should move a needle um, so yeah I, I'm big on just trying to Keep it simple, keep it basic, focus on the fundamentals as much as I can. And like if, if we're gonna if we're gonna use something, make sure that it works. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right then. Looking at your looking at your Instagram profile, it's clear that you have a passion for the for the speed side and it's good to see it's you in it. I mean, in the sports myth stuff, it's not me, 
but we're getting people who are obviously try, hopefully better than me at doing these things to to be the model. But when it comes to your stuff, I know it's your account and that's slightly different, but it's you and it's you going through these drills. It's you. If you went back probably two years, you could probably see the progression of you doing certain things. So I think that's really important. Something that certainly I was guilty of, like many others, is you nail the weight room, you you practice what you preach, and then you maybe skip over the, the field stuff and then move to the game. And that kind of thing in between is 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 the missing piece that isn't practiced what when we preach. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like it's it's probably the most specific thing that we do. Like we, we all go and do the speed warm-up or the agility warm-up, but we don't train it ourselves. Um, and like so many SNCs will they'll practice the, the drills a few times so that they can do the demo or just make sure like the dimensions are right or whatever. But I think there's something to be said for like living and breathing it. Um, that's where you understand the nuance. And I think a lot of SNCs are really good at understanding the nuance of how to train in the gym. Like we understand oh, actually this subtle adjustment to how you grip the bar is going to make a, a big difference to yeah, creating tension in your upper back when you squat. Yeah, get your hands in nice and tight. Like those are the sort of subtle differences that um, you can come and tip an athlete up about and they go, oh, actually, that's a good tip. Like I hadn't thought of that before. But when it comes to stuff that we do on the field, um, a lot of us, like we're flying pretty blind, I reckon. We kind of go, oh, yeah, I kind of know that this works. But if you if you really um, yeah, go all in on that sort of element of your training, then that's where you, you get the, the minutiae of it a little bit more. Right, mate. Sorry Thank to be standing on my soapbox there. No, no, it's I'm good. It's great. It's, no, it's, it's great. Like I, like I said, I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. When you, when you, when you speak about it, when you see it online, you, the stuff you put out online, you can see that it's a big passion for yours, of, of yours. So, uh, it's good to hear that. It's great. It's great. It's really good. So, anyone that wants to know more about you, the work you got going on, social media stuff, where's the best place, Nathan? Um, yeah, I think Instagram is probably the main platform for me. I've Definitely gone a bit more quiet on there lately. I think I've run out of energy for it. <laughs> so I'm getting older. Easy to do. I was pretty prolific for a while, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll get back into it at some point. Um, yeah, just just my full name with an underscore at the end of it is my handle. Um, I think that's my handle on other things too. Like I'm on Twitter, I don't post as much as uh, on, on other platforms. But um, yeah, just at Nathan Clarley underscore on stuff. <laughs> Perfect. You'll find me somewhere. <laughs> no, that's great. Love the knees over toes stuff. People can read the article to go into more depth there. Conditioning stuff. Love it. Lots of great tips. And the speed stuff, you can see the passion. So thank you very much for uh, chatting about those three things and look forward, to, look forward to keeping in touch and chatting soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Rob. It's um, been a real pleasure. Like I said, mate, listen to this podcast for years, probably every episode. Uh, so it's pretty cool to come on and speak to you today mate thanks for having me absolutely pleasure thank you for the kind words speak soon cheers cheers buddy thanks for tuning in to episode 418 of the pacey performance podcast big thanks to nathan for fitting me into his schedule making time for me and working around the time zones big thanks to hawking dynamics i measure you kitman labs team builder and play for sponsoring this episode today the podcast could not run in its current form without these guys so i really do appreciate all their support big thanks to you for tuning in hope you got lots out of it as much as i did and look forward to chatting to you next time Oh,